You're listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about how there's massive amounts of cognitive dissonance because people are like, no, that's not true. It's not happening. It's fine. And everyone's in denial about the fact that it's just total collapse because they've sunk so much energy into these things that they just can't get rid of the idea that it's not going to work out for them. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 30th of November, 2022, with Cecilia Wee. Dr. Cecilia Wee, RSA fellow who uses the pronouns she, they, is an independent curator, artist, educator, consultant, coach, and agitator working with arts, culture, and community organizations examining issues of equity and precarity in the workplace and beyond to make strategies and infrastructures of learning and dreaming with underrepresented communities. Cecilia wrote her PhD on the documentation of live art, is an associate lecturer in visual communication at the Royal College of Art, and founder of TDWM Studio. I met Cecilia at the Keep It Complex conference in 2019, same one where I met Lou McNamara, and then worked with them for Back End London. I spoke with Cecilia at the RSA, or Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. The audio quality for this season is varied, so remember that the transcripts for all these conversations are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. Our conversation was 50 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you two minutes in. Sounds like you've had a hectic morning. Um, so you haven't come from Margate? No, I've just come from my mom's house actually okay. in Stratton. Okay. Yeah, which so, is where I grew up. Okay. Um, and yeah, just like loads going on this week. So I've been, um, I was running a workshop on Monday um, with Grenfell Health and Wellbeing Service. Um, which is part of the NHS kind of like coverage and stuff for Grenfell impacted communities. Um, and then I was teaching at Royal College of Art yesterday. Um, and then I was doing a lecture at Birkbeck yesterday evening. And then we're going to go to the UCU rally later on. Um, and then hop back to Margate at some point. Yeah, when today. did you move to Margate? Um, in early October. So my house is still like Tetris. So I was just like speaking to my person with my shelves who are going to be, they're going to be delivered tomorrow. I'm like, unfitted. Fingers crossed. So exciting. Yeah. Um, why did you move to Margate? I was just like, I want to go somewhere. Or, or I want to have like my own place and I have quite a few friends in Margate and um, it's really sweet there and like when I first thought about moving there and I was just like I want a bay window I want a bay window and my own place and so that's what I've got you found it. You found I your did. bay window I did. and your own exactly. place. You're going to yeah. get your shelves fitted. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Feeling good about your decision. Yeah, definitely. I spent quite a few weeks there um, earlier this year. It was just like chilled. You know, I don't have rose tinted glasses about it or anything. Um, but it's just a nice place to be. And I go and visit the sea every day. I live like 10 minutes away from the sea and I go and check 
well, the sea's still there every day. Um, and then when I leave to come to London, I'm just like, oh, bye, sea. I'm going to miss you. But guess what? I'm coming back, so it's fine. Yeah, so wonderful. Yeah. It's funny, I also want a place by the water. And I mean, I guess... By the way, I'm not really that much of a water person. So yeah. Like, that's what's hilarious about it. Like, I can't really swim. Yeah. Um, and I've never been one of those people who's been obsessed with the sea. I was just like, I think it'd be just really nice to be here. Cool. So the last time I saw you was in 2019, I think. A long time ago. A long time yeah, ago. exactly. And you were um, involved with 12O's Backend. That's right. Um, and um, and I feel like we had a nice chat also at Keep It Complex conference. I think that's m maybe where I met you first. Yeah. And then we had a good chat at Backend really quickly. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe that's a word. Um, did you do research in Chicago? I went to Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. I just wanted to kind of, before I ask you, yeah. like, I've read in this article that you wrote, whatever. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of, like, recall that memory and be like, okay, so I recalled correctly that you, you, did. Exactly. you were in Chicago. You did, what were you doing in Chicago? Hanging out, basically. Yeah. yeah. Are you from Chicago? I went to grad school in Chicago. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just hanging out. <laughs> so I went for a week in November 2019 when I arrived it had already been snowing for like two weeks and I was just like oh my god I can't believe this and then luckily it melted because I was just like you know for me it's too early for snow um, and then I stayed in Hyde Park and tried to really just like hang out with people on the south side and like just folks of colour and like disabled artist networks and stuff like that I'm trying to recall all of the places that I did see. I went to like visit the Crossroads Fund, who do an amazing project called the Giving Project. They're part of a like national network of like nine projects in the US and maybe Canada as well, um, who do this brilliant kind of community philanthropy model. Um, we can come back to that in a bit. Um, as well as visiting Hyde Park Centre, um, I did visit um, Theaster Gates's projects, which is a whole other story. <laughs> um, and Three Arts and Three Walls. Um, did a little session at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Probably saw some other people as well. I can't recall right now. But yeah, it was it was great. Amazing food and really great conversations. And yeah, just like uh, getting in touch with lots of activists who work in different ways in the art scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, I did want to ask you about um, community philanthropy mm. and some of the work that you've done around that. But I did read your article that you co-wrote, um, We Need Collectivity Against Structural and Institutional Racism in the Cultural Sector, June 2020, which maybe is a while ago. But yeah. one of the quite concrete suggestions that you give, demands that you have perhaps, um, is breaking our codependency on philanthropy. Um, mm. And I know that you are you know, and working in, in collect and like collect 
collectively with people, including right, like working on this statement collectively with um, Jade Montserrat, Michelle Williams Gamaker, and Teate. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that. What yeah. are you doing around, yeah, collective, yeah, like, um, what are the, what's the exact phrase that you used about um, this one organization in Chicago that we would get back to? Uh, community philanthropy? Yeah. 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 Okay. So I guess like the article that we wrote for Arts Professional, um, it does seem quite a long time ago, actually. And I just remember, so myself and Jade um, were involved in lots of conversations that dated back from like 2018, 19, um, about all of the I guess, lack of institutional accountability within the art sector around racism particularly, um, and thinking about how we would articulate that. Um, and I think it felt like it was always really urgent for everyone who was involved. So there was quite, quite a group of people who were sort of coming in and out of conversation and, you know, how it is. Um, but then there wasn't, you know, because we were all sort of like struggling in our own situations and facing like the everyday <laughs> that we have to, um, it didn't really, there was not, there was never really the right time to kind of like address that. And then when the pandemic happened and then also like all of the stuff around the black squares um it just like we were like we need to write this thing whatever it is we black need to squares write this thing. instagram blacks what the are we instagram talking about black squares it was like the blackout tuesday wasn't it i think it was like the blackout tuesday that all of that was everywhere like institutions were all like posting black squares after the murder of George Floyd. Um, including loads and loads of arts organizations and we were just like what on earth you know what on earth like you need to look at your own houses you need to look at your own country you need to look at like all of the stuff that's going on that you know so many of us have been talking about for such a long time and that you've been denying um so that's how we kind of like came together to write this statement um and um, Jade and Michelle were, were in touch about this as well and so we kind of like got together and over a series of like really lovely actually early morning chats <laughs> um, and Google Docs then we wrote this we wrote this statement and I know that there's a lot in it but and actually you know for us we realised that we couldn't necessarily carry everything, but actually, hopefully we laid out a series of prompts for people to kind of think about, to act on, and for us to also pick up later on down the line in the ways that we could. So I guess like, you know, for me, one of the strands of work I've been doing is around like um, equity, diversity, inclusion practice. Um, which is both fulfilling, but also like a terror. <laughs> um, and 
So yeah, doing that for various different organizations. I think it's really good that people are like finally investing in this work, but then we still see that there's so many issues in terms of, you know, even when you're doing this work, then you're still experiencing all of the problems that you're talking about in it. So that is something that hasn't changed. <laughs> and so I'm sure that you can know and understand and have heard from others. Um, and then the other strand of work that I've been involved in is really just kind of like thinking through some of these issues around community philanthropy and um, a different relationship to like resourcing. So I, my research, like previously, I did a lot of work on the long-term impacts of the global financial crisis. So like 2008 financial crisis. When I graduated. Is it? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that must've been really hard. Well, I mean, it's interesting also in, um, Maybe in, in the piece that you wrote, um, Saturday's Child, you oh, might have yeah. said something about kind of being, I have it here, so let me just... Um, Which was the text that I wrote for We Industria in their publication in 2020, and that was also very kind of like, they wanted to do something during the pandemic, and so they were just like, we're going to put together this this publication. Yeah, a bunch of, bunch of 2020 stuff. Um, exactly. You talk about experiencing the immediate collapse of art education <laughs> and how uh, your attention has turned in the last few years uh, to infrastructures. And, mm. and I think I might have written somewhere like, um, you know, it is, it is really interesting because I feel like maybe every person feels like this in their generation, but it does really feel like I am a enough a part of the prior ideals to show up for things only to have them collapse in my feet. Whereas the generation after me, they're like, no, I'm not gonna go there, but I'm in the generation that's like, oh, a bachelor's degree means something, and then I show up for it, and they're just like crumble, 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 and I'm like, let's get an internship, and then it's like, that means nothing, and also you have to pay for it, crumble, crumble. Mm. And then, you know, get an MFA on the other side of the MFA. It's like this generation of people that are like, I don't need an MFA, and then you're like, you're right, you don't, maybe, maybe you don't need an MFA. And then now I'm getting my PhD at Oxford, first year. Um, they're grappling with the fact that they put up like a, you know, a statement against racism, which was like deeply generic um, and unacceptable. Um, and also the way that their infrastructure kind of had fallen apart during the pandemic. And they didn't have other kinds of infrastructure, like collective community building to support any kind of welfare um, because you know, at least the structures at Oxford, right, have dismantled the ability to collectivize um, and to community build. And so it is an interesting place to be to, uh, same thing with teaching, right? Like I have enough friends that are kind of a generation above me where like they've gotten to the point where they've gotten the job that they've worked so hard, too hard, been burnt out, like been burnt out for, gotten it. And now they're like, fuck this. I don't want to fucking do this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so it's so wild to just have things kind of crumble at your feet. But yeah, still be a part of a generation that still shows up for those things. And then you're kind of like, why am I here? For sure, for sure. No, I fully, I fully get that. I fully get that. And I think, I think I'm not, because you graduated in 2008, so that means I'm a little bit older than you. I'm probably like the generation above you. So like, yeah, that came before you. But actually, I would say that 
my generation, I say that in air quotes. Yes. Um, <laughs> a generation, and all of the generations that we're talking about are in air quotes. Um, is, is actually that bridge between the collapse because we were still taught that it was definitely going to happen for us, as in like, you know, working in an arts organisation in the UK, I guess, let's say, um, is something that you you can make a living from. Um, and also pursuing an academic career is something that you can, you can get a job and you will get well paid and you can look after yourself. You'll be able to look after yourself from that. And so that was what people were kind of like aiming of and, and thinking about. And, you know, that's where, um, that's where education kind of like leads you to. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think that there is a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's massive amounts of cognitive dissonance because people are just like, no, that's not true. It's still happening. It's fine. And that everyone's in denial about the fact that it is just like total collapse um, because they've sunk so much energy into these things that they just can't get rid of the idea that it's not going to work out for them. And, and obviously that kind of like creates this whole, it reinforces this individualistic culture because people just like, in that case, if you didn't get it, then it's your fault. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're the person who failed and I'm fine. And I'm just going to pull the ladder up after me. Goodbye. <laughs> so I think what's really interesting about the current times, particularly with like um, all of the strikes. So, you know, in... In 2019, we've been striking since 2019, obviously, like in the higher education sector. Um, and now, obviously, because of the cost of living crisis, then we see like so many other unions and sectors have come on board with strikes and striking has become like, you know, there's this renewed energy around it. There's a new kind of like vigor and hope around it, which is really brilliant. Um, and we can see that change can be made through this, through collective like action and specifically withdrawal of labor. Um, and, you know, I think that even for myself, um, like how you articulate that you're a trade unionist has definitely changed. Um, whereas people used to be a little bit like, I'm not necessarily gonna talk about it because you know, it's a political issue, as in a political and divisive issue. Um, I think it's become a lot more acceptable, particularly in these times, which is fantastic. And, you know, I just wanted to say that, like, we're currently sitting in the Royal Society of Arts, who are refusing at this point in time to allow the staff to unionise. So we have also been writing as members of the RSA to say that actually, you know, there needs to be like if the staff want to do this, then they should be able to do this because it's um, the RSA have also written about like union, like labor laws and all of this sort of stuff and actually given an award to the IWGB who are the union that the staff want to be part of. Exactly, there you go. So it's all around us, <laughs> literally. Another like moment of dissonance where you're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I mean, obviously it's like 
you get used to this lip service mm-hmm. um, where people say one thing and then do another. But it really, um, I guess it's important to s- maybe still not become desensitized to like this dissonance or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like, which I think mm, it's difficult because, you know, in this work of like doing that kind of activist work around um, around labor and employment and all of these sorts of things, you have to have space for like being enthused and inspired and being just like, yeah, we can do this. And actually this type of, you know, what solidarity means, or that kind of, um, you know, rousing us all and all, that, all of that. But then at the same time to be able to just like sit quietly and be like, this is actually really shit. Um, and this is how it affects me as an individual and like to be able to connect to people and have those conversations on a very, very personal level as well. Um, and I think that, you know, I guess a new generation of trade unionists have also felt that they can bring that energy as in the ways that we, um, the ways that we act, the ways that we are, need to model behaviors in a different kind of way it's not just about the end goal we can't just shut people out because you know obviously like the trade union movement has also been um like has also perpetuated like racism ableism classism you know etc etc right um and we see that all the time um and so at rca for example then it was really important for us like when um when rca put out black square then we were like that's it. Okay, we have to launch an investigation into institutional racism at the RCA, and that's what we've been doing since like 2020. Who's we? Um, the union. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, we went through this really long process, and I don't think that, you know, we're not there yet by a long shot. There's so many things to do, but at least we've started to kind of like, you know, the first thing that we did was. Um, we, the RCA, like just a few weeks after the Black Square, um, said that they were going to appoint um, a white, as far as I understand, like cis, non-disabled person, like non-disabled man, as the head of equality diversity. And we were like, this is not happening. And also because we know that it's because he came from a similar role in another institution that did not have a good record of <laughs> around EDI practices anyway. Um, then we said, you know, we need to retract. This, this recruitment needs to be retracted and the recruitment process needs to be open again so that someone with lived experience can, can like get into this role. And we've done, you know, we went through all that process and we've done that and now they also have a team member. And so, you know, there's all of these kind of like very, very slow processes that are happening, but at least, you know, every win that we, we get um, and every like kind of case that we make um, is, is something, yeah. 
And so, yeah, when you kind of mentioned like real changes, you seeing real changes, you know, I was going to be like, like what? But it, you, I feel like these were some of the real changes you were talking about, like yeah. some slow, potentially sometimes slow ongoing processes, but still real changes and like um, important things to hold on to, to be able to do this work. Exactly. Exactly. I think it is really um, because... The, the infrastructure at RCA, for example, was so lacking, like there was not even an EDO office, there was nothing. There was, like, this was going to be the first person who was really going to be in charge of EDI. Um, so we had to kind of like start from scratch. And, and actually, at the same time, then we were having our own local dispute. So like, up until last academic year, that 90% um, of the teaching was done by people who are on zero hours contracts or like for term contracts, including myself. So um, that was the dispute that we also had to focus on at the same time as kind of like, you know, addressing these, these issues of institutional racism and um, yeah, inequalities, essentially. So, you know, the fact that we now, through our local dispute, we went on strike quite a few times last year um, including marking an assessment boycott, then um, we've managed to get, like, um, yeah, basically anyone who has continuous service got put onto new contracts, um, and most of them are permanent contracts. So we essentially managed to save, like, quite a few members of staff from being accidentally made redundant yeah so important and yeah exactly and that any new contracts at the rca have to be like pop contracts so yeah cool can you just tell me about um you know in addition to this work um at the rca in addition mm. to this work with your trade union uh maybe um what are you working on right now yeah sure um so which goes back to the kind of like conversation about community philanthropy. So on Monday, I was doing the second workshop for this new project that I'm initiating, which is called Our Community Inheritance. Basically, it draws on like some of my research around, you know, the long term impacts of the financial crisis, um, as well as like community currencies and alternative economics and stuff like that. Um, as well as like sort of traditions of community organizing and my real, I guess, like interest in education, which is around lifelong creative learning and those opportunities um, and making opportunities for people to investigate like their, their communities and do that in a creative way using yeah using artistic techniques and and, and methodologies and and kind of concepts and stuff like that so the project is very much inspired by the giving project and so i should probably say something about the giving project which is that um so these kind of like nine organizations across the us and canada 
each have their own program. Um, and so the, the Crossroad Fund in Chicago runs the Chicago chapter of the Orbean Project. And so every, I think it's every year, then they set up like this cohort of people, um, which is intergenerational, cross-race, cross-gender, um, ability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they essentially train these people in a program and they get them to kind of like think about and then really engage with their own histories of privilege. So thinking about where their wealth comes from um, and how that's impacted by like their social status, their you know, family background, their race, etc. etc. Um, and the, so these people kind of like go on this journey, which is a sort of collective journey, but then also there's individual aspects. Um, and obviously, like it has very particular resonances in the US that it doesn't, that are maybe slightly different than in the UK. Or rather, let's say that, um, that people are not so aware of in the UK. They're not necessarily as tuned into because the conversation is slightly different here around inequalities, right? And, and the causes of inequalities, let's say, i.e. colonialism. Let's not, let's not forget about that. And like, the UK's part in that. Um, so, all of these people go on this, on this journey and then they have a kind of like really honest conversation and, and they make a commitment to fundraising from their community. And so each person kind of like says what they would be able to fundraise. So somebody who comes from an upper middle class background or whatever um, and has like historical family wealth would be able to fundraise more because they're into those, you know, they're part of those networks and stuff, right? Um, whereas somebody who doesn't have that kind of privilege would like, you know, they would have a conversation with the foundation to talk about like a smaller donation. And then they go out and do that within their own communities and then they also go and visit all of these community projects that um, want to get some funds. And then every year they manage to fundraise like for about 10 projects, each getting $10,000. Um, and that's it. I'm not any interested in, in the fact that the outcome is that they've supported all of these projects within the community. They've gone and built relationships with those projects as well found out about them, really understood, like, how can we rethink, like, community resourcing? Um, so, you know, when I say community philanthropy, then I really mean community resourcing. Um, but also they've gone in this journey, and hopefully, like, every single person that they've contacted about this program really understands, like, what it means to, like, rethink that wealth and redistribute that wealth that already exists in, in the community. So I don't think people are ready for that. <laughs> okay. Or rather, the, I need to test that idea again because um, the feedback that I got from a foundation was that this idea is too American. And I'm just like, I remember the... Do you know Edgar Bulaneva's book, Decolonizing Wealth? It's a really amazing book about his... Um, knowledge and experience as a philanthropy, like someone working within philanthropy in the US who's coming from an indigenous like 
First Nations background and trying to bring that knowledge into that philanthropy space. So he said that when he came to the UK and talked to people who work in fundraising, particularly from like marginalized communities um, and particularly like um, people from global ethnic majorities, then he said, you know, there were people crying because their managers and the people who ran those foundations could not accept that racism existed and shows up within those organizations. So we've got a long way to go, um, despite like, you know, there's lots of foundations, for example, um, Barrow Cadbury, I think I want to say, or like um, Roundtree and um, quite a few of the organizations who have trusts and, and foundations um, have said, you know, we make a statement about our historical links to slavery, etc. Um, but I think that how that translates into a different kind of relationship that isn't about this paternalism, that isn't about this kind of like um, idea that marginalized communities are only beneficiaries, that they have nothing to give, and that they are not already giving, that needs to go in bin. <laughs> and so my project really tries to engage with the local community, like works with the local community, um, and tries to map and create kind of like hyper-local archive of community assets. And community assets can be, is essentially like, you know, about our skills, about our experiences, about, you know, what is within the community that could be like environmental riches um, and, you know, all of these words are like, when I say riches and wealth, then they're also tainted by like capitalism and particular sort of like lenses that we have over these things. But at the same time, like, you know, how can um, spiritual wealth or spirituality and spiritual engagement, for example, within a community be a contributing factor to resourcing? So just really thinking about like all of those social relations and like how they kind of map out. Um, so that's one of the kind of like backbones of this, of this project is like mapping those uh, those resources that exist in the community in order to kind of like reflect on them and for people to understand that actually um, we have those things, those are visible um, and that when we reflect on these things we, then we can also see that the community would like something, you know, that there are things that the community would want um, to thrive so, you know, the questions that I ask are around, like, in the first part, around superpowers. And then in the second part, it's like, what would be valuable um, for the community? What would be beautiful for the community and, and inspiring for the community? So that's what we were doing on Monday. With with, with the Yeah, with um, Grenfell Impacted Communities. And that was a collaboration with um, the NHS Grenfell Health and Wellbeing Service. So the service, just to explain, is like um, was set up in the wake of the Grenfell disaster um, and is running for five years. So it will 
finish in about 18 months' time, which I guess is around like um, June 24th. Um, and at that point, it will be like the seventh anniversary of the fire. Right, so I was just saying that the workshop process, that is the workshop process. And then my hope is to kind of like do this model in different places and and build up the kind of like to stimulate a need for this idea to to take place more and um, to create some kind of mechanism to um, draw people into a network of of like resourcing within their communities. I am going to ask you the only question that I ask everybody, mm. the last question, uh, which is, um, did we talk about what you thought we would talk about, or do you have any questions for me, or is there just anything that you'd like to say on the record? I don't know. Do you have any questions for me? Well, I mean, of course what I have you, so many more on, questions on. with you. What, should we just do like rapid yeah, fire for the yeah, next like exactly. five minutes? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. How do you choose the communities that you want to work with in this project? Mm, uh, okay. I'm not sure yet. I'm well, not sure yet. Yeah, I, there's a couple of people I really like to... I kind of like to work in Birmingham because I feel like there's loads going on there. There's some really interesting people that I like to be in touch with again and, and, and kind of connect with more. Um, for example, like the Maya group people. Um, and, you know, it's really exciting because it's like a minority majority city. Um, and with with so many kind of like histories of inequality there. Yeah. Cool. Next question. Thank you for that. <laughs> Next question. Um, so um, in the um, the same article that we talked about, uh, the collectively written article, mm -hmm. we need collectivity against structural and institutional racism in the cultural sector. You speak to how reports in particular at times instrumentalize the stories of um, people of color, LGBTQIA, people, working class people, people from marginalized backgrounds, uh, as case studies, um, um, inviting them to share their vulnerabilities and pain. And you've been involved in a number of reports. Um, quite recently, what the Contemporary Visual Artists Network, England's Fair and Equitable Program, I feel like you also recently um, were involved in a report that was specifically about mapping live, live art. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering like how you, um, you collect data and stories from people, but in a way that doesn't instrumentalize their, mm, yeah. um, specifically their vulnerabilities and their pain. Yeah, I think, uh, I guess like I'm trying to think about how to give an answer that's not super technical. Um, it can be technical. It can be technical. Okay, cool. So we... Whenever I've done these these sessions with people and, you know, it's like the setup is so vital. So like just trying to say, okay, these are the community participation guidelines. Like this is how we're going to work. Um, this is how we're going to use the data. 
this is like the conversation, this is who's going to be in the conversation, like from our end. Um, we will not directly quote you. And if we, if we do end up quoting anybody from the session, then we'll check in to see if they want that quote to be used, like all of those things. So it's really <laughs> like it's really technical, but I think, and, and also just being like, you can withdraw at any time. Do you want to have a chat, et cetera, et cetera. And just like giving people like a super clear understanding of like what they're getting into. Um, and just trying in that space to kind of like create a spirit of generosity and just being like, okay, cool. Like, you know, acknowledging the fact that when someone has shared something, you're just like, okay, do we just need to like acknowledge that, take a break, whatever we need to do, like depending on the situation. And that's, I guess that's what I'm, I'm talking about. Like, you know, we can all be like, oh, like, we want these things to happen. We can make these demands. We're so strong, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, when we're in these sessions, then the reality is like, people are sharing stuff that's so deep and so horrible, you know, and you gotta just like connect with that and not necessarily be like, okay, right, I need to move on to the next question and da -da 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 -da. <laughs> So, yeah. Um, I think that's, and, and to, you know, when you're, uh, when you're finalizing those sorts of reports, like to make sure that, you know, the decisions that you make around editing and any challenges that you have around the edit are ones that you believe in and that kind of like carry out the spirit of, of what the session was because you never know when someone's going to challenge it. Yeah. Especially in the edit. <laughs> we got to go. Uh, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Epilogue. On the 30th of January, 2023, Cecilia Wee wrote this to me. Not much has been happening aside from trying to settle into my new home and trying to get some downtime. Last year was a lot, and I ended up hibernating for a few good months after we met. The hustle continues, which is an ongoing, sometimes tiresome process of sculpting things and building the future. However, I guess that gestation allows some clarity and improves one's articulation of what one wants to do. I've been working more on how to communicate the big ideas of our community inheritance and plan to do a little hybrid public event to talk about the project and look for new partners. This will probably happen in March or April. I'll be posting about it on Twitter, as well as on my mailing list, the link for which you can find in the show notes. Cecilia also wanted me to share that higher education workers across the UK are taking sustained strike action this term. This campaign, UCU Rising, is happening because of a real term pay decrease of 28.4%, over the last 12 years, workloads that are making people ill, rampant casualization that is destroying the heart of a generative education system, and the refusal of universities to address gender, ethnicity, and disability pay gaps. There is an active network of art colleges across the UK fighting against the attacks on our education system. See at Defend the Arts on Twitter. 
but there is also a tendency in art colleges to align more with industry and arts organizations where unionizing and industrial action is limited and requires more momentum. We who are a part of the art education system are also a part of the education system. I hope we can see that anything less feeds into a form of exceptionalism that has compounded the inequalities in our art worlds. If you work in or with an art college, please support the strikes, visit the pickets, donate to your local college's hardship fund, tell students and colleagues why this strike is happening, join UCU if you work in higher education or a union for art workers like UVW designers and cultural workers. Solidarity. You can find more information about Cecilia Wee at their website, ceciliawee.com. Links to what we spoke about today, as well as other interviews with people in the arts, are on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva DeWerden, the episode artwork was created by Julia Rotti, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with Ruth Lee.